This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to the Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Welcome back to the lounge, everyone. Special episode today, tackling the issue of sexual offenses, sexual assault trials. Uh, You're going to hear a little roundtable, which I'll introduce shortly. And there's a special, small, short, little snapper of a segment at the end of the episode. So stay tuned. It has been decades since a fresh perspective has been published on the law of criminal evidence. Iman Publishing is proud to announce the release of its first treatise, Modern Criminal Evidence, authored by defense litigators Matthew Gourlay and Jill D. Makepeace, Crown Attorneys Glenn Crisp and Brock Jones, and Superior Court Justice Renee M. Pomerantz, with a foreword by Justice David Doherty. He described the book as a go-to resource and that it truly leaves no evidentiary stone unturned. This landmark 800-page treatise analyzes evidentiary issues for all types of offenses within the Canadian criminal justice system, including digital evidence, confessions, and self-incrimination, and the intersection of proceedings. In addition to practice tips that provide readers with years worth of trial experience, anticipate evidentiary issues, develop practical solutions, and employ compelling advocacy strategies. Get your copy today. Visit emon.ca slash LLP MCE. And as a special perk for Lawyers Lounge listeners, enter promo code MC15 at checkout for 15% off your copy of Modern Criminal Evidence. I'm so lucky to have Janani Shamuganathan and Daniel Brown here with me in the lounge today. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So, you know, I said it's the episode that I, I never uh, wanted to record. I hope you're not as reluctant as I am, you two. Well, thankfully, I don't have judicial aspirations, so I'm okay to, to speak my mind here. Nor do I, nor do I, but I think uh, Janani may be a shoe-in, so she might be. (laughs) Maybe not after this episode, we'll see. (laughs) Well, the reason we're doing it is um, for for those of you um, in in the know, those of you who hang out in the lounge, you know that on October 5th and 6th, the Supreme Court is hearing a case called JJ, which is a constitutional challenge to some key provisions of the criminal code that impact sexual offenses. It's a big case, huge case, huge constitutional challenge. It's going to be heard uh, next month in October. And so we thought the time was ripe to take the temperature on the litigation of these uh, offenses. And I think, you know, truthfully, this team can only talk about Ontario. So I think we're going to be really you know, hyper specific about on Ontario litigation here. Um, but we just wanted to kind of have a check-in on, on these cases and, and this area um, of the law. And, you know, it's very interesting. I, we are all um, excited to see what the Supreme Court does in JJ. Um, the defense has not had an easy time uh, 
uh, of late uh, when it comes to sexual offenses uh, at the Supreme Court. Um, the stats are pretty abysmal, uh, something like 22 or 23 of the last cases before the Supreme Court that involve sexual offenses, uh, the court has sided with the crown. So, um, you know, it's not baseball. We don't keep statistics, but, uh, you know, it is something that uh, we've noticed, you know, the defense bar has noticed, and um, it is potentially some some cause for concern as we um, walk into JJ. But I think the place to start is, Janani, can you can you just tell our audience for those of, of um, uh, those listeners that don't know you, um, what your your practice is like and, and how it intersects with with the area of sexual offenses? So I do criminal trials appeals, and I also do some professional discipline work. So in terms of sex, sexual offense work, um, our firm has a relationship with one of the teachers union as well as with one of the nurses union. So oftentimes when a teacher or a nurse gets charged with a criminal offense, and unfortunately they're oftentimes related to sexual offenses, our firm steps in to handle it. Um, so we've dealt with several multi-complainant sexual assault trials for teachers as well as for nurses. In terms of appeals, you know, I do the whole gamut of appeals, including sexual offense appeals. And I've also started lately to do a lot of uh, professional discipline work. So for example, lawyers who get charged with a sexual offense criminally, there's a parallel investigation that starts with the Law Society and I step in to help them. How about you, Dan? Yeah, so uh, my firm does trials and appeals, but I'm mostly, almost exclusively a criminal trial lawyer. As far as the type of cases I do, I do obviously a wide range of all types of cases, mostly representing professionals who've never been in trouble before. Um, and quite often now that seems to be a, a sexual offense or sexually related uh, offense, whether it's um, a sexual assault charge, uh, potentially a voyeurism charge, potentially um, distributing an intimate image, something like that. There always seems to be some sort of sexual component uh, surrounding these allegations. A lot of them are domestic related events where somebody comes forward and, and often what's included in there is some sort of historic complaint that relates to a sexual assault. And uh, even though I do lots of other really challenging work, it seems as though not only am I doing even more sexual assault cases than ever before, but it's really getting harder and harder and harder as a defense lawyer to do these cases. And quite frankly, probably even more expensive for the clients because there's so many steps in the process now, even before you get to trial. We're gonna talk about that today, what these hurdles are that the defense has to overcome just to have a fair trial. And so there's a lot of stress associated with that from, from my point of view, but also a lot of challenges from an accused person's point of view. Yeah, and I, you know, from, from my part, um, I do a lot of sexual assault uh, trials um, and litigation of sexual offenses, uh, some discipline, discipline work and appeals, but I've also recently started acting in the capacity of an investigator um, for large organizations and employers who are investigating allegations of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Uh, and that's been an interesting development in my practice uh, and a way to, to utilize, you know, the, the, the skills and the knowledge base that I've accumulated on uh, the criminal litigation side in, in this other arena. So that, that has been tremendously interesting, but I echo your, your comments in terms of the complexity, complexity, Daniel, and you know, one thing that 
I say to people is, and I'm sure it's the same for, for the two of you, what walks in the door is very diverse. You know, it, it will range from um, youth, youth cases to murders, to manslaughters, to drugs, to guns, to sexual offenses. The difference though, is that the sexual offenses almost always go to trial. And there always seems to be an off-ramp and other types of offenses, but um, you know, the sexual offenses uh, tend to be litigated. So my trial practice you know, the days that I spend in court are dramatically days spent uh, litigating uh, sexual offenses. But maybe what you can do, uh, Dan, for our audience is just, you know, we keep saying it's really complex. Um, can you shed some, some light uh, onto that? And you, I know you wrote the book. <laughs> so when we say it's complex, what are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different areas that are triggered sometimes in a sexual offense case. Uh, sometimes uh, it's a historic case and you need to look back at what the legislation was at the time and what pieces of that legislation still govern the process today and which ones don't. Um, you also have to look at um, sometimes there's multiple complainants and the Crown Attorney wants to lead evidence of these various complainants all in the same trial. And so we have challenges surrounding whether or not these complaints are similar enough, whether there's been collusion between the parties. I mean, these are some of the issues that can exist in a sexual assault case or really in any other case as well, but there are a few specific areas of sexual assault law that are unique only to sexual assault law, meaning uh, in any other type of case, we don't have to go through these particular hurdles. They only apply to sexual offenses. And one of them is if you're going to ask any questions about a person's um, other sexual activity. When we talk about other sexual activity, we're talking about something that is outside the bounds of the allegation. So not what happened on this particular day that led to the, the sexual assault, but uh, did a person engage in some sexual encounter beforehand, afterwards, uh, that may be relevant to an issue at this trial. Uh, in order for us to introduce that evidence at trial, there's a whole screening regime. And uh, there's been some recent changes to that screening regime, which has added even another layer of complexity. That's one of the major differences is dealing with this other sexual activity. The other one surrounds um, records that may be in the possession of, of a defendant. Uh, previously, if, uh, an accused person had some sort of record, whether it's a phone record, a text conversation, an email exchange, uh, they could introduce that in court uh, to challenge a witness's credibility, to undermine um, a piece of evidence that's before the court, uh, or just to give some context or support to their own evidence that they're giving in court. And now uh, that that those private records, any of these potentially these email exchanges, correspondence, therapeutic records that an accused person may be in possession of that may be relevant uh, is automatically inadmissible in a, in a sexual offense case unless they can clear some hurdles, which needs to establish not just that the evidence is probative or relevant, but it's substantially uh, or significantly probative. And so these really high uh, barriers that have been set, uh, they're there for a reason. I mean, there's obviously reasons behind it and, and what the government would say is good justification for it, but it's also created significant challenges in the case just to negotiate the procedures to get through these uh, various stages. And um, also it, it potentially 
uh, undermines a defendant's fair trial rights uh, in the process. And that's what a lot of that uh, constitutional litigation that's happening in October is going to be about, is, is whether or not a person's constitutional rights to a fair trial have been undermined by the creation of this process. And separately, even if it, the law is constitutional, is how do we interpret these provisions, these new provisions that have been created uh, in a way that's consistent and makes sense and adheres to kind of the spirit of the legislation. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, the, the interpretation piece has been a big challenge um, from the time period that the new provisions were enacted, I think in 2018, to um, the hearing of JJ at the Supreme Court in, in 2021, so much litigation has been spent on interpreting these sections, and, and in particular, um, the question of what is a private record has been uh, a massive con contest across the province, um, with crowns taking the position that correspondence between spouses um, uh, fits the definition of record in, in Section 278 of the Criminal Code and triggers a reverse disclosure regime. Also, the interpretation of what is prior sexual activity and whether even mentioning a prior relationship um, fits that definition. And there's been hot contest on that. And, and um, you know, the avid criminalists in the audience will know of Goldfinch and LS. So there's been just so, so much in just like Janani, there's just been so much litigation just trying to figure out what these sections mean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you start a sexual assault trial, I mean, when I look back at my practice, the kinds of trials I really enjoy doing are ones that have certainty. It's going to start on time. We know how many days it's going to be. <laughs> I hate sort of OCJ for that reason. Everything just feels chaotic and I just really like a lot of certainty. But now with sexual assault trials, there's just so much uncertainty. You're litigating everything. Um, things happen mid-trial and then chaos happens. Your client hands you something that is really useful, but then you have to be like, can I use this? How do I use this? Do I have to disclose it? Do you wanna pay for the cost of adjourning this trial? And then we have to deal with this trial later. Are we gonna get dates to resume this? We have to get a complaint in a lawyer. There's just so much chaos that happens um, when once upon a time, this was just relatively straightforward. You, you went to court, cross-examined, someone testified, it was fine. And now there's just so many hurdles that are in the way. And, you know, I think just, Dan, what can you tell the audience about prelims, preliminary inquiries, and, and, and the intersection between what just Janine just told us about and, and prelims? Sure, and for those who don't know what a preliminary inquiry is, it was uh, when you were facing a serious criminal uh, charge uh, where the Crown Attorney proceeded by indictment, you were entitled to a preliminary inquiry, uh, which was uh, really what we would often call just a discovery hearing, a chance to, to hear the witnesses testify before the trial. Um, and that was important because often in cases like sexual offenses where it's a he said, she said, uh, and where we rely on the adversarial system to kind of demonstrate inconsistency as a hallmark of untruthfulness or, or unreliability, a preliminary inquiry was an important piece. Uh, and it was especially so because sometimes the police that are doing the front end investigations, 
either they're not asking the right questions or they're not necessarily interviewing the right witnesses or their questioning is so superficial that it really doesn't help explain what happened uh, surrounding the allegation or, or even dealing with the allegation itself. And so a preliminary inquiry was a really important tool, really not just for the defense, but I think for the Crown attorney as well to understand what happened in the case. Uh, is the witness a credible witness? Um, is the case strong or weak? And a preliminary inquiry could take a day or two. You might hear from a few key witnesses, but you didn't have to go through necessarily the entire case. You didn't hear all the evidence. Um, and what that would mean is that by the time the case came to trial, uh, not only did the parties have a sense of what the, that trial was all about, sometimes a witness, uh, sorry, a defendant may say, well, look, actually, it's quite a strong case, and this is quite a credible witness, and I want to plead guilty because I've had a chance to kind of test the evidence, and yeah. I realize I'm in real trouble here. Yeah. Uh, other times, the Crown attorney might come to that same conclusion that they have a really weak case, a really unreliable witness, or maybe a dishonest witness, uh, and, and opt not to prosecute the case. But even separately from that, and so obviously there was all that court time that saved in the, if you could just pre-screen some of these cases at the preliminary inquiry stage. But even separate from that, what you had was an opportunity at least to lay the groundwork for some of these applications that would happen at trial, uh, whether or not there were therapeutic records that may be relevant to the case, uh, whether or not you would be bringing any of these other pretrial applications to introduce um, you know, prior sexual history, whether or not you might get into um, any other types of records that might be important. And you would have already this evidentiary groundwork. So you would be able to just go jump right in. You'd know where the records are that you have to pursue. Uh, you'd get everyone into court all at the same time. And now, as Jenny was saying, uh, you end up in the middle of a trial, discovering all this information, realizing that the trial has to come to a grinding halt while all the parties uh, chase after this information, argue about its relevance and its admissibility. And then you have to come back months later, often when a, a witness is in the middle of uh, their uh, questioning and their examination to, um, to deal with the issue again. And that's even more problematic if this is in front of a jury where uh, traditionally jury trials were meant to be kind of solved in a very finite um, and immediate kind of period of time. And then what you're doing is you're sending the jury off for months at a time and then having them come back and, and try to pick up where they left off. Uh, I mean, it's a skill that some judges have, but I think it's a really challenging thing for the juries. Mm -hmm. And so the loss of preliminary inquiries, which happened as part of Bill C-75 uh, in 2019, meant that many sexual offenses like sexual assaults um, uh, are no longer eligible for preliminary inquiries. Only more serious sexual offenses like uh, aggravated sexual assaults um, or sexual offenses against children are still eligible uh, for um, preliminary inquiries. And what I've even read recently, one of the uh, platform uh, promises of the federal conservatives if they're elected is to eliminate even more preliminary inquiries, which is going to potentially cause even more chaos in the justice system uh, and even more of these kind of mid-trial scrambles uh, to pursue uh, evidence and records. So um, all these things are kind of coming in at the same time. We have these changes to the legislation. We have um, you know, kind of procedural um, processes that are being gutted from the criminal code. Uh, we have changes to the jury process and all of this is impacting a person's fair trial rights.
Just to pick up on something Dan said, if that's okay. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, he talked about how difficult it can be for a jury to step away from a case for months at a time or a judge and to step back into it. I think it's also important to mention it's really difficult for us as lawyers too. Uh, just because we step away from a case doesn't mean we can still continue to work on that case until whenever it gets adjourned to. Um, I know the case really well leading up to the trial. Something else I have to take over and I'm immersed in that file and then I have to step back into it. Yeah. And it becomes a real access to justice issue. If you have lawyers who are doing these trials on legal aid, they're not getting double the prep time to prep a trial the first time around for to get adjourned and have to prep the trial again. These are free hours they're putting into in order to do the best service that they can do for their clients. I think that's yeah. a really good point. And what I often explain to my uh, friends who are trying to understand that process, I said, so imagine like studying for like a big exam that you have coming up and all the time and effort you put into that. Um, and then having that exam kind of getting delayed or interrupted midway through, it isn't just that you've done the studying and you remember all the answers or, or uh, how you wanted to respond to the questions. Uh, you know, you, you lose all of that and you have to pick it up again. And you're right, uh, Jenny, there, there's so much extra effort that has to go into uh, kind of preparing for a trial that's been broken up in this way. And, and, and not just for us, but even for our clients who've been preparing to give their own evidence, they have to start that process again. And, and even the, the witnesses who are, you know, get, get stopped in the middle of cross-examination and, um, and receive judicial orders not to talk about their evidence with anyone, um, you know, sometimes there are exceptions that they can continue with their therapy, um, but frequently these um, complainants have counsel and they're prevented from meeting with their counsel while they're in cross-examination. So the disruptions, I think, are are terrible for for everyone. And I, you know, I couldn't agree more with both of you in terms of the the value of a preliminary inquiry. The number of motions that I've abandoned after a preliminary inquiry um, because I've had the opportunity to vet the defense theory and really narrow the approach. Um, the loss of the preliminary inquiry, I think. Um, promotes a everything but the kitchen sink approach to advocacy in these cases because you know we've got a professional liability concern as well that if your your client says look there's a prior relationship that's relevant here and you've got zero opportunity to examine the complainant about that prior to trial um, you may have to bring the application um, without really vetting um, you know where uh, it's it's success. Um, uh, or not kind of falls in your trial strategy. So, you know, I think, I think that these, um, these changes have, have caused a tremendous amount of difficulty and discomfort for the defense bar um, and for the witnesses. You know, I, I don't, I, I've represented a number of complainants. I don't think there's a, a complainant in the country that wants their sexual assault trial to involve five days of pretrial motions an interruption of their cross-examination and a process that's dragged on um, for over a year. Absolutely. I think maybe a good place to go now is maybe just to talk about some of the changes that, that have happened recently. What, what are these new significant changes to the process that might make this process unconstitutional now when it wasn't before? Yeah, please um, go for it, Dan. So, 
one of the big changes in, especially when we're talking about getting into a person's other sexual activity, uh, that isn't something new that there was uh, uh, rules to follow surrounding that or that there was legislation that guided how a lawyer would approach that issue. Uh, what is new is the fact that um, into this process now exists um, the, the right for a complainant to be represented in the process, to have their uh, interests uh, represented um, by allowing them to appear at that hearing uh, into their prior sexual activity, to allow them to make submissions to the judge on that, and to allow them to be represented by counsel. Um, and so this is the big thing that previously it was the defense and the crown in court, and the crown would be the ones uh, representing the complainant's interests. They would be the ones that would uh, raise issues about uh, the relevance of, of the evidence and why it was admissible or not. Uh, and now what we've done is we've added basically a third party, and not just any third party, but like the partisan complainant and her lawyer into the process. Um, and so it, there is already from that, just this ability to appear and make submissions, there's been a lot of debate about what that means. Uh, when do they get to appear in the process? At what stage of the process? Because there's a few stages uh, to the uh, process of, of admitting evidence of a person's prior sexual history. So when do the, does the complainant get that right? Uh, does she get legal representation as part of that right? Uh, in Ontario, um, it is uh, almost as a, a matter of right now that the, the, the Crown attorneys will ensure that a complainant not only is present at these hearings, but is uh, that they're paying for a lawyer for the complainant, regardless even of their financial uh, need for that. So even when we think about um, the unfairness of that process is that an accused person who is charged with a sexual assault uh, may or may not qualify for any type of legal supports, yeah. uh, may or may not be required to represent themselves. Yeah. And yet a complainant in every single one of these cases in Ontario is getting funding from the government, whether they would financially require that assistance or not. Um, and so not just a question of when they get to participate, but how they get to participate. What does it mean to make submissions? Does that mean that they get a copy of the application record and which explains in great detail what evidence is going to be led at trial and how it's going to be led at trial and what it's going to be used to prove? Uh, do they get to see that or do they just get to know a little bit about the general nature of, of the uh, issues at play? And do they even get to participate in the process of questioning an accused person who has to file um, evidence in support of the application? Um, and so part of what makes this potentially unconstitutional is that here we have a complainant um, who now has the right to cross-examine an accused even before the accused has even begun to testify in his own case. Even before the complainant has given any evidence of the case, uh, we have uh, her cross-examining and potentially cross-examining an accused person using evidence uh, that hasn't yet been disclosed to him. It could be some records that she has in her possession that she hasn't shared with anyone yet. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, just the, the idea that, um, that an accused person has to share with everyone, including the complainant, where they're going and what their defense strategy is. So, I mean, this is in some ways, people call this a reverse disclosure regime because in the past, a, a defendant wouldn't have to share all this information with uh, the, the Crown, with the police, with the complainant, and now they're being forced to put everyone on notice of that, what this case is about. And so when we're dealing with the adversarial system, 
Um, it, it's kind of a hard way to test a person's credibility when they know everything that's coming. It's like testing a person's uh, intellect when you've given them all the answers to the questions in advance. Um, it's, it's, it just doesn't work the same way. And it only applies to these particular cases, only to sexual offense cases. We don't do this in any other case in the criminal justice system. Yeah. And so th there's a real question about the fairness of this process, which is really what's uh, being attacked um, in, the, um, sex or in the constitutional challenges that are before the Supreme Court. Yeah, and I, I, I think, um, you know, one thing that troubles me and is, um, you know, we, we parachute complainants counsel in on questions of relevance and privacy on these motions. Um, and, you know, I, that, that's probably part of the regime that I find the least troubling because um, I do see, I can see how a complainant has um, a, a particular interest in, in how um, these sorts of matters unfold in public court. You know, I've got, I've got some, some sympathy for that position um, and, you know, I, I, and many of these lawyers are, are very learned, very expert, um, and it's a pleasure to appear with them uh, in court. So that part, I don't mind. The, the thing that troubles me a little bit uh, is I think there would be a real role in place for those counsel on resolution matters, because I know that very many complainants are interested in restorative process um, and the types of resolutions that don't involve trials. And, you know, the system is not very open to the participation of counsel or complainants in those discussions. Um, and, I, and I think that's really an area where um, there's value add for the system um, in terms of reducing um, backlog and, and narrowing trials. Uh, but I, I, that may be a bit controversial, Janine. I don't know. No, I think it's um, an interesting idea. And sometimes these allegations surface in circumstances where something just goes wrong in the relationship and there's just some ill feelings that could be resolved just through a conversation if you just get everyone into one room together. Um, the concern that I have, though, with uh, complainants counsel participating in these kinds of discussions is we don't want necessarily to have the complainant dictate what happens, right? We, we're always wary of the Crown um, acting on what the complainant wants to do rather than what they should do in the interest of justice and the minister of justice. And so to give the added voice of a lawyer in something that may not actually lead to resolution, it may could lead to resolution if it wasn't for the complainant participating in some way, I get concerned about that. And just, you know, talking about these 276 applications and 278 applications where complainants counsel are involved, I can just tell you from personal experience I really don't like participating in those kinds of motions because I just feel like there are so many people against me, you know, and think about it from the client's yeah. perspective. You have somebody that's sitting there who's been charged with an offense is told that the presumption of innocence is very important that he's presumed to be innocent, but he walks into courtroom, whether a real courtroom or the, the zoom courtroom 
And then there is a lawyer for the record keeper. There's a lawyer for the complainant. There may be a second complainant. And all of these lawyers are taking positions that are contrary to what your lawyer is saying. And then they turn to you and say, well, what's going on? Why do they get so many lawyers on their side? How come they get so much airtime to air all of the issues that they have with the submissions you're making? Just from an optics perspective, you feel as though you're the only one on your client side and there's so many other people on the other person's side. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Dan, you may remember this, but years ago, um, it would be very rare in Ontario that a crown would, would take an adverse position on a 278 application on a records application. And so very, very frequently, um, you know, uh, complainants council would, maybe be opposed to a records application, the Crown would demure, uh, particularly if there was a consent from, from the complainant to fork over the material uh, at a stage one where the court reviews the material for relevance, for likely relevance, uh, the, Crown, the Crown would kind of throw up their hands and say, your honor, it's in your hands, you have it, you've got the complainant's position, you have the accused position and, and take a very neutral role in that process. Um, you know, from an experiential perspective, and I think I may have a healthy sample size, they're really all lined up on one side of the courtroom these days, aren't they? Well, it certainly feels that way. I mean, I still think obviously that there are crowns there that um, are, want, want to do the right thing and, and, and do the right thing, um, but it does feel like the, the, the deck is stacked against you in court. And I, I, I know that feeling that Jenny expresses of like feeling like everyone's against you and um, I mean, that's being criminal defense lawyers, we're all kind of used to being the underdogs, but our clients aren't kind of used to being in that position. And really, like the stakes are really high in sexual offense cases, uh, higher now than ever before. Uh, there was a recent uh, Supreme Court case called Freezen, which talks about the types of sentences that should be given in some types of sexual assaults. Uh, cases, especially um, uh, sexual offenses against children. And I'm not sure anyone would disagree with that proposition that a person who sexually uh, offends against a child like ought to be punished in some serious way. But the problem is that many of these sexual offenses uh, simply can't be solved without a trial uh, because it's really all or nothing. If they are found guilty, uh, most often they go to jail and they go to jail for significant periods of time. Uh, they're placed on sexual offender registries for at least a decade or more. Um, and just getting back to that point you made about, you know, wouldn't it be nice that there was some other process available? I know uh, from having spoken to uh, sexual assault complainants from having represented them as well. I, I do that yeah. as part of my practice, although quite infrequently, yeah. um, that often they just want to hear the words I'm sorry, I'm going to take responsibility for my actions, I'm going to do some counseling, I'm going to uh, learn about consent in a, uh, in, in, and kind of understand meaningful consent in a different way. Because a lot of these sexual offenses aren't what you might think of as like this like stranger dragging somebody into the bushes type sexual assault. Uh, almost every single sexual assault case I've ever done uh, involves two people who knew each other, two people who were already involved in some sort of relationship with each other and where uh, I think both sides genuinely feel as though they were in the right. Uh, you know, the complainant yeah. feels as though there wasn't consent, the accused feels as though there was, because oftentimes, as we all know, that when we're dealing with the issues of consent, 
Uh, it isn't vocalized uh, in the moment the way it needs to be. Um, the, the types of steps that somebody takes, uh, especially when there's alcohol involved, especially when there is maybe already an existing relationship there, um, we, we, don't, we don't necessarily ask for each and every step we, that we may, you know, there may be other indicators and sometimes those indicators are misread or missed altogether. Um, and I think that's the real challenge here is that uh, it, that there isn't really another process that exists to deal with the people who just want closure because, yeah. you, and, and as we all know, you don't get closure even in, in the criminal justice system, even the complainants that I've represented who have, you know, where the accused is found guilty, they don't want them necessarily to go to jail. They just, they don't even, they're not happy about the outcome. They just wanted someone to acknowledge that some hurt happened to them. And so here we are, like we're, we're all kind of immersed in this process, trying to achieve a result that really is going to make at least one side very unhappy in the process. And it would be nice if there was some sort of like informal mediation process that existed as well for those parties that could potentially benefit from it. I, I don't think people appreciate um, how in the majority of cases, the factual dispute is very, very narrow. You know, a, a typical um, sexual assault case between people who know each other have had some prior relationship. Often the complainant's version of events and the accused version of events is identical with, um, with a, a difference in terms of state of mind, you know, often an unspoken state of mind. And so, um, you know, the litigation centers around really technical fights around records and privacy interest and um, reverse disclosure and constitutional challenges. And it's really um, lawyer stuff. It's not people stuff. Yeah, I, and I think that's that, that's the struggle that we always deal with is that uh, there, there's a human element that's lost in all of this. And, and really, like you say, uh, there's very little in dispute, but what is in dispute is kind of the difference between uh, the stigma of a sexual assault conviction and, uh, you know, two years in the penitentiary uh, and uh, walking free and just, you know, moving on with, with your life. So there's a lot at stake in these cases. And that's why, you know, the lawyers are going through all these motions and, 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 and looking for every potential tactical advantage that's available to them because the, the, the stakes are so high for their clients. You know, I, I think we have seen um, the justice system becoming more uh, responsive to um, uh, the reality of um, institutionalized racism, institutional racism, unconscious bias, um, racism in policing. I think we're starting to see trends in the appellate case law. Uh, all the way up to the Supreme Court of a growing recognition of the lived reality of, of uh, racialized indigenous and black um, uh, people who are policed across the country. Um, and I, I think we're all um, as defense lawyers, enthusiastic about uh, that move. We may be a, a, a not, you know, varying degrees of patience. <laughs> Uh, but I think I think we're we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel on these issues. Um, but strangely, and Janani, I know that you're very active in your intervention um, portfolio on on a lot of this stuff. Um, interestingly, 
none of it appears to apply in the area of sexual offenses. <laughs> Am I seeing things accurately? No, I think you're, I think you're seeing it quite accurately. And I think what people need to know is there is a real concern that wrongful convictions may be happening. Um, if you make legislative amendments in such a way where it compromises an accused right to a fair trial, you're really putting that person at risk of a wrongful conviction. And I know that I find sexual offense cases to be quite difficult to try because there are all these hurdles in the way. There are all these reverse disclosure requirements that require me to explain to the complainer, the complainant's lawyer in the Crown, what my theory is, what my case is. And I worry that what if my client gets convicted? Um, it seems as though on appeal, it's becoming more difficult to overturn convictions in sexual offense cases. And then, then what happens? How do we ever rectify a potential wrongful conviction in a sexual offense case? There's no DNA that's gonna surface to exonerate our clients. We just have to wait to see what happens. And it may be that there are wrongful convictions that are happening that we can't ever correct in the future. Yeah, I think I think that you know, unfortunately, um, what's starting to emerge is this this idea of the wrongful acquittal, and some of the legislative changes I think are directed at this this idea that there is such a thing. Um, but you know, as defense counsel, we know that there that there's no such thing as a, a wrongful acquittal, and really, the deck is is designed to be stacked in the accused's favor because the system abhors the idea of an, an, an innocent person losing their liberty. And, um, and some of these tweaks to the system appear to be designed to uh, balance against that foundational premise. Um, and I think that's why so many of us are anxious um, for our clients who come to our offices adamant that they're they're innocent and and having to face um, these protracted proceedings that take years to complete um, with no certain outcome and very few opportunities for resolution. Um, you know, I share your concern about wrongful convictions and you're right. I don't like these are not wrongful convictions that will be righted um, at the advent of some new scientific um, discovery. These will be people who are wronged and are wronged forever. Yeah, I mean, one of the real challenges here uh, is that for years, um, judges have instructed the jurors or have instructed themselves that basically when they're assessing the evidence of these people in front of them, you know, where it's a he said, she said, uh, which is almost every sexual offense that happens in private uh, between two people where there's no other witnesses there, um, we, we, we look to what a person's reaction is afterwards. Well, what did the complainant do afterwards? What did the accused do afterwards? How did they act? How did they act when they were confronted with the allegation? And, and uh, judges and, and juries are asked to apply their just their common sense. You know, what, what does your common sense uh, say about this? Does it, uh, you know, accord with, with, with logic, with your experience? Uh, but the difference 
of course, is that um, especially in a very diverse society like um, Toronto or Ontario or even Canada as a whole, is that people just have different cultural norms and different ways of acting and different ways of responding. Uh, I had one client who was a very, you know, kind of prim and proper uh, British man. Uh, and um, when he was confronted with uh, a sexual offense allegation, he had a very muted reaction. And the judge thought that that was not right, that if, if you were confronted with a sexual assault allegation and you were innocent, you'd be screaming from the rooftops. Um, and likewise, we've seen other examples where uh, the courts have been critical because a complainant, you know, uh, didn't, you know, the judge said, well, why didn't the complainant run from the room screaming, you know, if she, it, there's someone else nearby. And so, like, we, why didn't she complain right away? Like, we, meaning we, we, we tell ourselves we're not to consider those types of reactions because uh, there is no kind of singular universal human experience. Um, and yet all the time we're asked to kind of assess the credibility of witnesses based on what we ourselves would think is normal. Um, uh, well, there was a recent court of appeal case out of Ontario uh, dealing with a police officer who had assaulted a, uh, a young black man. And the trial judge in that case said that really um, when he was assessing the credibility of this witness, uh, this young black man, he had to do it in the, in the context and with the sensitivity of the realities that racialize individuals face in society. So he, he couldn't judge this person based on necessarily his own experience or how he would have interacted with the police, but about how a young black man in, in these circumstances might interact with the police. And I think there needs to be more of that, like, you know, kind of less reliance on how uh, we just expect a person to act and more scrutiny on how this particular person acted and be mindful really of, of their cultural background that might explain uh, why they did or didn't act in a particular way. Um, and so, yeah, like the law is constantly evolving and, and it'll be interesting to see how these types of, um, or how the law in this area kind of, kind of threads its way into the sexual assault law. But right now uh, we don't have a lot of scrutiny over um, how witnesses' evidence is assessed and whether or not it's um, appropriate or inappropriate to kind of dismiss their evidence in a particular way. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it has to be said that while, while we recognize that certain populations in, in our country and in the province are over-policed, um, that is true for sexual offenses as well. I mean, my, my client base tend to be well-to-do and, and they are predominantly racialized. You know, there are not a lot of white guys walking in my office charged with sexual offenses. And so, um, you know, efforts to uh, drive up <laughs> the guilty findings will uh, incarcerate more racialized people. That's just the, the reality um, of the situation. Um, so I think, I think we've, we've touched on what um, the challenges are for the system and the fears that we have for our, our clients. I think on a, on a personal note, what I'd like to address now, if you feel comfortable, is um, whether there are any, if you face any personal challenges in litigating these cases, um, apart from the concern and fear that we have for our clients and, and you know, overall policy uh, grumpiness <laughs> in terms of backlog and confusion and, and messiness. Um, Dan, why don't we start with you? 
Well, I mean, just the act of litigating these cases kind of creates a, a giant mess in our schedules. It, it, everything's done in piecemeal. I have a case that started already and it's not gonna be completed until the middle of next year because there's all these particular hurdles we have to overcome. And I think that's a real challenge. And I think it's, it's especially challenging right now because we had these uh, changes to the um, sexual assault regime that came in in Bill C-51, you know, the addition of um, records that are in the hands of an accused person are now potentially subject to a pre-screening regime if they are considered private records. And that was something that was decidedly not the law before uh, the fact that in a, in, a, a, in a challenge to get into someone else's other sexual history, uh, you know, again, talking about what the role of the complainant is in that process, what, what can she do to participate or not? And there isn't a lot of appellate guidance here that we have this one case going to the Supreme Court and then almost nothing else. So we have some trial decisions in almost every jurisdiction, but there isn't a single appellate authority that's giving us any type of guidance on these issues. And uh, that may be um, a product of a number of things that, that COVID, I, I think, delayed some of these cases from happening in the first place. So delayed some of the appellate courts to weigh in on them. Uh, and also just the appellate courts are maybe a little bit backed up as well, kind of getting out of the funk of COVID and getting out from their own backlogs. But we just, you know, this legislation has been around for about three years and there's just nothing there. So while everyone's looking to these um, cases going to the Supreme Court uh, to answer every question. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I, I'm not sure that every uh, nuance of this legislation is going to be addressed in a singular case. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not even sure they could do that, even if they wanted to do that. But I, I think, obviously, that'll be a step in the right direction, because it may eliminate the need for some of these uh, pretrial applications, even just a pretrial application that we might bring just seeking clarity on whether or not the records we have in our in our particular case are 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 engaging the legislation or not. Yeah. Uh, and I know that Jenny is uh, doing mostly appeal work. Like she's she's probably dealing with these same challenges. It's just there's not a lot of appellate authority that's giving guidance on how we deal with these issues. Yeah, it's interesting. Um... It's interesting because I'm a woman, right? And I'm sure Danielle, this is something that you've had to confront as well. And I think being a woman and doing these sorts of trials, it does leave you with something different, a different impression. Um, I find that I, I find that sometimes complainants look at me and, and they're disappointed that as a woman, why am I doing this? Why am I asking these questions? Why am I putting them through the, this trauma um, that they're describing. And I just think it's it's not fair. Um, I just feel like sometimes the our justice system has forgotten that as defense lawyers, we're just doing our job. Like we're doing something we're required to do. I look at my job as something very important. I'm the person that's standing in the way of my client potentially going to jail for quite some time. I'm an important role to play. And I just find that sometimes um, we're so careful about wanting to ensure that we're not asking inappropriate questions to the complainant that sometimes appropriate questions are shut down, that sometimes judges may step in and say, well, why are you asking that same question again? You know, let's, let's slow down. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And we've just kind of forgotten that the defense lawyer plays 
a really important role. And so I think for me, I find that as a woman, when I go into the court and do these kinds of cases, um, I'm careful about what I ask. I obviously care about the complainant's feelings. I'm, I'm not a not an aggressive cross-examiner. I think I do a really good job for my clients, but I don't need to be aggressive to get to where I need to get to. And I just find that sometimes when crowns in submission say that counsel is just engaging in rapeness, I'm actually personally offended because I'm so careful not to do that. And yeah. the questions that I'm asking, they're not rape myths. They're not based on myths and stereotypes. There are legitimate things that I'm pointing out about the complainant's evidence. And I just feel like our justice system has forgotten that there is legitimacy in what we do. Yeah, I, I, um, I think, you know, for me, the, 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 the challenge is, is more outside of the courtroom. Um, and I, I think what, what's been challenging for me doing these cases for 15 years is, um, is that the world like labels me an anti-feminist, <laughs> which is like the most absurd idea. If you've known me my whole life, it's just so absurd. I, you know, I, I, years ago, I had a talk scheduled at a university um, that was canceled because um, there was a fear that my talk with with criminology students would be triggering to sexual abuse and assault survivors um, and that you know that my kind of anti-feminist views would be upsetting to the student body which I think um, you know I, I, I found um, upsetting at the time and I think I'm still still processing how upsetting that was and and I think as as defense counsel and as women there's not really a place for us in the legal culture you know there are lots of feminist groups um, legal groups but they're carceral feminists like they are feminists who believe in crime and punishment and believe in jail and um, and and there's not a lot um, of uh, focus on feminist reforms that begin with the proposition that women are not fragile and they have agency and, um, you know, that not, that nothing good comes out of jail, which is where I start from, you know, and I, and I, those are beginning propositions for me. And for, uh, I thought my cohort of, of feminist friends that I grew up with, at women's studies at New College, you know, in 2004. And I think one morning I woke up and I looked around and my sisters weren't with me. <laughs> I didn't know where they went. I didn't know where they went. And so, you know, I, I, find, um, I find that the world has told me that my objectives and my life's purpose are anti-feminist to be um, profoundly upsetting and discouraging. Um, and so, you know, I take um, some solace in my friends in the defense bar and women like Janine who stand with me, you know? I don't know if, I mean, that's a bit deep and, and tough, Dan, I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, we, we all face the same issues uh, out of court. I mean, obviously as, as a woman, you're asking, you know, how could you do this? I mean, I get asked all the time, like how can I sit there and, and question whether or not a, 
uh, a sexual assault complainant is telling the truth. In fact, because it starts almost with this premise that they're not a sexual assault complainant. We call them survivors now. We call them survivors, which presumes that it, it, it happened uh, and it presumes that they're a victim. In fact, even the legislation that governs um, you know, the terminology in courts now, that there's a victim rights bill that says that we will call somebody in court, no longer, we don't call them complainants anymore. They're called victims, uh, even if they are, aren't proven to be victims yet. We call them victims at the start of a case, which is like, isn't that what we're there to, to decide is, are they a victim of a crime? And so if we start with this premise, you know, that we have to believe that we have to accept that someone is a sexual assault survivor and a victim. And we're also told we have to believe people who come forward and make sexual assault complaints. Um, it kind of puts everyone against us. And yet we, I, and I don't want it to be said that I think that every woman who comes forward or every man who comes forward and makes a sexual assault complaint is lying. Of course not. Of course, I yeah. would say that the vast majority of them are, are, are likely true, or at least the, the, the people who are saying it believe it to be true. And as I said, some of these things end up in that gray area where two people just see an event in a very different way. Um, but we also know that not every case is true. Not every case is a genuine case of, of, of sexual violence. And if that's, if that's the case, how do, we, how do we, how do the defense lawyers ever know which ones are the righteous ones and which ones aren't? Uh, I think back to uh, a gentleman, his name was Anthony Hannemeyer. And Anthony Hannemeyer uh, was accused of a sexual assault. He was identified with 100% certainty as being the, the perpetrator of the offense. His lawyer said to him, uh, even in the face of his protestations that he didn't do this, uh, you need to plead guilty because they're going to throw the book at you and send you away for a long time if you don't. And he followed his lawyer's advice and he pled guilty, um, which is kind of like the fundamental thing all lawyers are told not to do, which is if your client says they're not guilty, you have to take the case to trial. And as we know now, Anthony Hanemeyer was 100% innocent. He was found, he pled guilty to a crime committed by Paul Bernardo, like a serial rapist and a serial killer. And that came to light later only because Paul Bernardo himself said, I committed that crime. Yep. But uh, like we were talking about earlier, like DNA um, isn't the smoking gun to exonerate you. Uh, wh whether or not DNA exists only speaks to whether or not a sexual event occurred, not whether or not that sexual event had consent or no consent. And often uh, that's the issue at play. And so there isn't that smoking gun. I don't know which cases are righteous and which ones are, aren't. It, people imagine that the lawyers sit there in the offices and the client leans over them and says, just so you know, I'm guilty, but you know, help me out of this one if you can. And that's not ever what happens. Like what happens is you get clients who tell you they're innocent, who tell you that this isn't true, who tell you that, that the event happened with consent. And then you're left doing everything you can to try and show that to the judge so that a person you think could genuinely be innocent isn't found guilty. And that's like the tension here is that people have this perception of lawyers as just being like, like tools that obstruct the justice system, that obstruct the truth of, of, of the process that are, are, are allowing uh, guilty people to go free when really what we're trying to do is protect the people like Anthony Hannemeyer from being convicted. That's it's so, so well said, Dan. And I, uh, you know, I think, I, I hope we haven't depressed all the 
law students who are listening, because what, what this area of the law does offer um, to litigators is, you know, complex litigation, opportunities for stat- arguments about statutory interpretation, um, you know, lots of credibility fights and reliability fights where you really hone your skills as a cross-examiner and you learn how to adopt different speeds. You know, Janine describes her cross-examination style as not aggressive. That's a that's a key tool that you learn doing these cases, how to moderate your style in cross-examination. Um, you really can develop superior trial advocacy skills uh, doing these cases. And because you're litigating these motions, you're all, almost adapting an appellate advocacy style as well that you can take with you um, in your discipline work and your, your appellate work. And so, you know, from from the perspective of learning to become a great lawyer, um, this area has a lot to offer young lawyers and and criminalists uh, uh, across the board. Um, And I would also add that as challenging as it is, it really is righteous work. I mean, we it really is. you know, defending the the Constitution every day for these people. Um, And I I think that uh, we're lucky to do it. We're lucky to have the opportunity to do it on behalf of our clients and for the system. And um, it's pretty thankless. You know, the system doesn't thank us very often, and certainly the the public doesn't. But I'm still grateful every day to have the the opportunity to do it. And I I don't know, Janine, if you're feeling exhausted or if you feel the same way, or it depends on the day. I think it depends on the day, but I do really view this job as a calling. I don't think you can do this job for long if you don't view it in, in that way. And so it is just important. And on those days where you fight the hard fight and you're sitting in the courtroom and the verdict comes out, um, it feels so good, right? And like, for me, it's, I don't know how to explain it, but if someone is found not guilty, I just feel this weight off my shoulders. I'm not even that happy for very long because for me, it's like, okay, the right thing happened. And then on to the next one. On to the next one, on to the next one. So I think that's a good place to, to, to stop. And I know that, um, my publishers at Iman will, I'm sure be running, running an ad for the book, but I really got to say, I commend Dan, Dan's book written with, um, Jill Whitkin, who, um, in Ontario is a very well-known crown uh, prosecutor with an expertise in sexual offenses. Um, it's a serious resource. I, I reread it very often. Um, so my copy is, uh, has, dog-eared pages and tabs and highlighting and stars and um, all, all sorts of things. So you need the second edition um, and you need to read it and reread it. And um, it's just been such a practical resource for me, Dan. Uh, I don't know if I told you that. <laughs> uh, you know what? I mean, it, I, I was I was just saying even before we started today was that it's a practice resource for me too. I mean, there, there's a lot of information in there. It's nice to be able to go back and, and go over this and what we know and what we've seen Uh, We have the trilogy of cases that came out of the Supreme Court in 2019 that dealt with um, the other sexual activity. You touched on uh, one of them. Uh, There was also uh, the Goldfinch-Barton RV trilogy. Uh, We we dive into like at least some of these early cases that deal with 
how you interpret this regime and maybe uh, you know, post uh, JJ uh, at the Supreme Court, we'll have uh, an opportunity to write a, even a third edition because there we go. as we know, this law is constantly changing and uh, you're negligent if you don't know the nuances. And, and also I'm sure, Jenny, uh, you and I would all say like, if anyone ever gets stuck and they wanna uh, ask some questions, pick up the phone, give us a call. Uh, we'll be happy to walk them through it, at least point them in the right direction for sure. Oh yeah, you gotta lean on your buds in this area of the, of the law and, um, and, and, you know, testing your defense theory, uh, uh, all, all of the time with your colleagues, you need to pick up the phone. You need to take people out, out for beer and coffee and uh, not at the same time, coffee or beer. <laughs> and, uh, and, and for me, that, that, that's a very key part of the practice is to stay connected, stay current, read up, um, stay grateful and, um, and and really that that's it thank you to to you both jen and lee unless you have an, a final thought i think i've ranted enough today <laughs> <laughs> all right guys thanks so much for stopping in at the lounge and um until next time crown prosecutor jill whitkin and defense lawyer daniel brown offer an extensive examination of the legal processes involved in litigating sexual offenses in the much-awaited Prosecuting and Defending Sexual Offense Cases, second edition. This edition contains new chapters on historical sexual offenses and cross-examination on private records. The text reflects the extensive changes to the criminal code brought upon by bills C-51 and C-75 pertaining to third-party records, other sexual history, and consent. This bestseller is designed to help practitioners focus on the procedural, evidentiary, and strategic elements specific to sexual offense cases. These elements include search issues, children's evidence, cross-examination on private records, and sentencing. Revised forward by Marie Hennen, contributions from Cecilia Hageman, Megan Cunningham, Don Way, Adam Weisberg, and Colleen McEwen. To learn more and order your copy today, visit emon.ca slash LLP SO2. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off. Just visit emond.ca slash LLP SO2 and enter code LAWYERSLOUNGE at checkout. Okay, guys, made up a new segment. It's called Trial Diaries. I'm here in the middle of trial. Uh, out-of-town jurisdiction, short jury trial on an allegation, historical allegation of sexual assault alleged to have occurred um, over 15 years ago. And I think what I'm able to provide you is a bit of an example of the mischief of 278.92. That is the um, reverse disclosure uh, section that we were talking about that Dan was telling you about in, in our talk earlier. So I had a document uh, in my possession that uh, on my review and in my professional judgment would not assist my client. I did not plan on using it in cross-examination of the complainant. I had the document for three years. The case has been ongoing for three years. I cross-examined the complainant at the preliminary inquiry and in my assessment, I wasn't going to use it. Complainant testified in chief uh, at trial and gave uh, a series of answers that were brand new, new evidence that I had not heard before that 
were directly contradicted by this document that I have in my possession. I changed my professional assessment and the document now was something I had to put to the complainant in cross-examination and uh, was extremely relevant uh, and notwithstanding my concern that there were aspects of the document that could be damaging, uh, its value far outweighed its potential prejudice to my client. The difficulty, of course, is that there's no clear understanding of whether this document, which was a a piece of correspondence, would meet the definition of record in uh, Section 278.1 of the Criminal Code. If it was a record, then I would have to bring an application with seven days notice, the complainant would get counsel, and its admissibility would be uh, argued uh, before the trial judge in the absence of the jury. Uh, and so I had to, in the after the in-chief and before my cross-examination, uh, vet the document. Uh, and, and by that I mean provide copies of the document to uh, the judge and to the Crown. And we had to argue on the spot whether... Uh, the document met the definition of two, 278.1. Um, and luckily, uh, the judge agreed with me that it did not meet the definition, though the judge did say it was a close a close call. I was able to use the document in cross-examination. Uh, thank God. If the judge had ruled in the opposite direction, if the ruling had been that yes, it was a record within the definition of 278.1, it would have necessitated an adjournment of the jury trial. In a jurisdiction that has sittings, a small jurisdiction, it would have meant um, several months delay for my client. And the complainant would have uh, been under cross-examination and unable to speak to the Crown, the officer, her counsel, or anyone about her evidence uh, until the trial resumed, if the trial could resume with the jury that had been selected and hearing evidence up until that point. Further mischief, uh, I uh, would have provided the document to the witness and her counsel, and she would have had months to figure out what her response was um, and try to reconcile her version of events that she provided in chief in the document that I had in my possession. And it would have most certainly taken the the wind out of the sails of the cross-examination and and imperiled uh, my client's right to full answer and defense. So uh, that's my story. And it, uh, we averted near disaster in this trial, but there are disasters happening all over the country in uh, trials um, from coast to coast um, where similar results are not met and counsel are having to fork over their cross-examination fodder. Um, and in my opinion, for what it is worth, um, that just can't be constitutional. Well, thank you everyone for sticking it out on this extra long episode of The Lounge. Big thanks to Daniel Brown and Janani Shamuganathan for helping us out on this difficult topic. The Lawyer's Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Danan Hawes, and marketing by Carly Pompeco.
My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like the Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our Iman exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students. 